I invite you to turn in God's holy word to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's in this chapter that the Apostle Paul tells us that we've been redeemed to live for the Lord and that we are new creation in Christ Jesus. We're beginning, as I said, the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism, which teaches us how to live now for the Lord who has saved us. And so we'd like to read 2 Corinthians 5, the entire chapter, beginning at verse 1, and giving our careful attention to nothing less than the Word of God. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God 
in him. There we end the reading of God's word. I invite you to turn to the Forms and Prayers book to the Heidelberg Catechism, one of our summaries of the Bible's teaching. Page 237 in the Forms and Prayers book, page 237, Lord's Day 32, part three, gratitude. And on page 237, question 86 says, Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace, through Christ, without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? The answer is because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also renewing us by his spirit into his image, so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits, and that he may be praised through us, and further, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. And then if you turn the page... Question 87 says, can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways? And the answer is by no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like will inherit the kingdom of God. Let's bow to ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we may sit beneath your word. And we pray that you will come, bringing us into your spirit's workshop. That you would make us what you want for us by your word and by your spirit's powerful influence. Let your word be preached and taught faithfully. Give us the minds to understand what your word teaches, that we may grasp correctly grace and the law and how these things go together. So help us, we pray, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if I asked you this morning to describe the difference between a Christian and an unbeliever, what do you suppose would be the the first thing that you would say? The difference between a Christian and an unbeliever. What's the first contrast or difference that would come to your mind? The Bible, interestingly, uses a lot of different contrasts to to get at the difference, doesn't it? Oftentimes, the difference between believer and unbeliever is simply that. It's a difference of belief, right? John 3 says that, that he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son will not see life. So the difference between Christian and unbeliever is that the Christian believes on Christ and the unbeliever doesn't. But that's not the only way the Bible describes the difference. Sometimes the Bible describes it as a difference of love. The Christian loves God, the unbeliever hates God. Sometimes it describes the difference as a difference of worship. The believer worships the true God, the unbeliever worships false gods. But among all the the different ways of contrasting believer and unbeliever, What I must draw our eyes to this morning is the difference of gratitude and ingratitude, thankfulness and unthankfulness. 
We come to this third part of the Heidelberg Catechism. We considered in the first part our guilt, that we as sinners deserve the wrath of God, our guilt. And then we considered in the second part grace, that God came to us sinners and and brought deliverance in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He, He lavished undeserved favor upon us to rescue us. But after considering our guilt and then this deliverance by the grace of God, we come to the third section, which is now about gratitude, how to live a thankful life. And it's in this third section of the catechism, remarkably enough, it's in this third part of the catechism, this final section, that now we're going to study each of the Ten Commandments in order. And that's important, that that our study of the Ten Commandments was not in the second part of the law, as if the Ten Commandments are so many rungs of a ladder by which you might climb up out of the pit, or might climb up to heaven, or might earn God's favor. It's not in the section on deliverance that we study the law to to, to study if I live good enough, then I can be saved. But it's in the third section of the Catechism. Having been saved, how now shall I live? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. I have saved you. Now live this way. You see, that's a very important order, isn't it? We say with the psalmist, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. The Christian's obedience is not the obedience of merit, but the gospel obedience of gratitude. You know, this is the secret of the Christian life that our unbelieving neighbors often cannot comprehend, right? They, maybe they look at you today, going to church again, yep, he wants to be a good person so he can go to heaven. Or, or tomorrow at work, yep, he's trying to be honest and work hard because he has to live a moral life to get to heaven. And what they don't get is that it's just the opposite. That our life of obedience is our sacrifice of thanksgiving. We serve God not to get saved but because we have been saved and we love our God and are thankful to him. Let's look at that this morning, how God gives to us new and grateful hearts. Let's look at the gift of new life and then at the fruit of new life and then at the urgency of this new life. Well, when the Heidelberg Catechism was written, the allegation that was being made by those who rejected the Reformation was that if you preach salvation by grace alone and not by our works, then people will just live careless and wicked lives because there's no motivation for holy living. If you give a teenager all the money they could possibly want, why would they ever go get a job? If you, give, if you just give people heaven without any works, without their own earning it in some way, then, then they're just going to live like the devil. If I can have my cake and eat it too, why not? If I can have heaven and live in sin, then that's what I'll do. That was the allegation. And our Reformed parents said that's nonsense. And it's completely biblically illiterate and ignorant. Because the Bible teaches that God never saves anyone by the blood of Jesus without also delivering them by the power of the Holy Spirit. The blood of Christ sets us free of our guilt, and the power of Christ, the Spirit of Christ, sets us free from the bondage of sin. God never justifies someone without also sanctifying them. 
So no one remains just what they were before. I'm forgiven now, but I'm the same old person. No, it never happens. It never occurs that way. 2 Corinthians 5 says, in fact, we are part of a new creation. The God who created the world and saw us spoil this world is making a new world, a new creation. And we who've been born again by the Holy Spirit are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Something extraordinary and miraculous has happened inside of us. The Christian is not pretty much the same as the unbeliever. He just has kind of a moral facelift. But the Christian has been changed from the inside out. He's a a new creature. He has a new heart. He has a, a new principle of life within. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Behold. It's a a word of surprise and pleasure. Look! Amazing! All things are new. The Christian, you see, mirrors the Lord Jesus. Jesus died on the cross and he arose to glorious life. And we've died to sin. And we've been raised in newness of life. Unbelievers, those who have not been made new in Christ Jesus, for them, thankfulness is impossible, truly impossible. And as someone has pointed out, the ingratitude of the unbeliever is both the evidence of their bondage to sin and it is the reason for their condemnation. Romans 1 tells us that the unbeliever refuses to give thanks. He refuses to give thanks to God. And there's something very unfitting about ingratitude, isn't there? We, we sense that even if we give a gift to someone and they don't show any appreciation or thanks, we, we think that's unfitting. But what if you invite someone into your house and you, and you lavish them with meals and a soft bed to sleep in and they picnic on your patio and then, and then they ignore you, pretend like you don't exist as they live in your house. But that's what the unbeliever does to the creator every day of their lives. Romans 1 says that all men are without excuse because they have creation revelation. All of creation testifies of God and yet they deny him. And we did that too until God saved us, but now everything has changed. Everything has changed, as the apostle can say, that, that now it's the love of Christ that's compelling him. The wonder of this that God has loved him in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Before Christ changed our hearts, we were self-seeking, self-worshipping, Self-promoting, self-absorbed. We live for ourselves. And we had to. We were enslaved to that. We were in bondage to that. But when Jesus died, he rescued us from that. 
And he purchased for us the spirit to give us a new heart, to reshape us and restore us to our original purpose. And this is the great gift of God towards us. The gratitude in our hearts is not self-made. It is the gift of God that Christ by his spirit has made us new. Aren't you thankful this morning, brothers and sisters? Aren't you thankful that you aren't what you used to be? Do you think about that? Has it occurred to you in this past week? You say, this is amazing. I, I love to serve my Lord. I love to know my God. I love to walk in his commandments. I'm so glad that I'm not what I used to be. Do you ever think of what you would be if Christ had not given you a new heart? What would it be like to be married to you if Christ didn't live in your heart? Whether anyone could stand to work next to you or be your neighbor if Christ had not made you new? The Spirit of God has transformed us. And the idea that a Christian has no motivation to lead a holy life because salvation is a gift and it's not by our works is ludicrous. We've got the greatest motivation all of the world. We have hearts that love God and want to please him. I've been set free from slavery to self. No one becomes a Christian by grace alone and remains unchanged. But the glory of the gospel is a new start. The glory of the gospel is that we get a clean record. The slate is wiped clean and we get a new heart. We get a new life. And that was the promise that God gave, right? The promise of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, it was not only for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. But it was also... This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. In the New Testament, the apostle writes to Titus, Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And in Ephesians 2, the proclamation that is by grace you've been saved through faith, is not of yourselves, that no one can boast, is immediately followed with the words, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For anyone to make the claim that salvation by grace leads to careless living is to run contrary to Scripture and really to suggest that they haven't read the Scriptures. Because over and over again, God says that salvation is also the gift of a new life, a new purpose, restored to our original purpose. That we should live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Isn't that marvelous? 
The world teaches us that if you live for yourself, then you'll find satisfaction, you'll find happiness. You need to look out for yourself. You need to, you need to find yourself. You need to pursue your dreams. You need to, to press forward with your case. And the Bible says it's all a dead end. Self-seeking is a dead end. If there's anyone this morning and you're on that road, that your life is about you, and that's what you're living for, that is the purpose of your life, you, then you're in a bad place. Christ says, cry out for a new heart, be made new. There is no life in seeking yourself. But for Christ's people who've been remade, he says, give God praise and thanks. For God has done it, you didn't do it. Think of Saul the persecutor, what an example he was, right? Saul was not looking for some moral transformation in his life. He wasn't trying to make himself a more grateful person. It was the Lord who sought him on the road to Damascus with that powerful intervention. And the Spirit changed him. And he went from being self-righteous and self-seeking to being a servant, a glad servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. How wonderful it is, this gift of the new heart. It's not, it's not a gift just for an hour or for a day or for a year, but for a lifetime. In fact, Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 4, which we didn't read, that we don't lose heart, verse 16, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. This new heart, this new life we have in God, this new love for him is ever growing. And that's the wonder. If we're united to Christ by faith, the Spirit lives in us to keep us always fresh and young. Remember Psalm 92 says, The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. That's the marvel of the new heart. It's thankful to God all the way until we see his face. Well, our family on vacation enjoyed once again seeing the example of great grandma and great grandpa. This couple I had the privilege of marrying, performing their wedding five years ago, because great grandma had lost her husband after his sickness for many years. And the one who had become great-grandpa lost his wife after her suffering. And when they asked me to marry them, I said, you know, both in your 80s, you both cared for a dying spouse, both been through a lot. What if one of you gets sick here shortly after getting married? And they, without a moment's hesitation, said with a smile, we would rather have someone to care for than to be alone. So we had a beautiful wedding. Now a little while ago, great-grandpa was diagnosed with cancer. And he's doing well by God's grace at this time, but he's had some rough days and a rough hospital stay. But everyone we talked to about great-grandpa and grandma said, what an example. What an example they are, still rejoicing, never complaining, still testifying to God's goodness. 
They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is the Christian, not only forgiven, but made new. Well, let's consider secondly this morning the fruit of a new life. In what ways does this new heart now show itself? The fruit of a new life, the fruit of this new obedience. Well, it brings adoration to God, it brings assurance to our souls, and it brings attraction for our unbelieving neighbor. Think of those three things to which the catechism directs our eyes. First of all, Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also renewing us by his spirit into his image so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits and that he may be praised through us. Being restored to the image of God, we magnify our maker. If you go to rent a car and you get a brand new car, has a new car smell and and all the gadgets work perfectly, and the car rolls down the road without any squeaks, and all of its precision and smoothness magnifies the maker of the car, doesn't it? It's well-engineered. I went and sold a car. I won't tell you the brand name, but I drove it so long that when somebody bought it for a couple hundred bucks, I had to spend 10 or 15 minutes explaining to them everything you had to do to make the car function, the trick to rolling down the window and the trick to make the light go on and the trick to doing this. The car was an embarrassment to me, and I think it should be an embarrassment to its maker. But you see, we are remade in Christ, remade in Christ Jesus now to magnify our Redeemer. We are being restored, and and we're being shaped in the character of our God, And our lives now are to magnify that God as they show his glory upon the earth. As we live for him and as we lift up his praise. In the 1500s, that Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus demonstrated that the earth is not the center of the universe. but Rather, the earth revolves around the sun But you see, for the believer, we've experienced, each one of us, this Copernican revolution. Because whereas we used to, Paul says, we used to live for ourselves, Christ died, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And now the center of our universe is not me, but it's Christ Jesus. And it's our joy to thank him and to praise him. And it's our delight to glorify God. What the world doesn't understand is that the life of gratitude to God is the only joyful life there is. There's no other relationship to God possible but the relationship of gratitude. If you're not thankful, you're not a Christian. You can't know God except in thankfulness. Thankful to the God who made me, who made this world. Thankful to the God who's rescued me. Thankful to the God who sustains my every breath. Gratitude is the great antidote to sin. Whatever sin you're struggling with, the antidote is thankfulness. Thankfulness to God. The joy of living 
is to learn to be thankful to God. You know, for our young people and young adults, sometimes in our younger years, we find our lives become very me-centered, and the me-monster rears an ugly head, and and suddenly we, we think it's all about me and what I want to do. Maybe we don't even notice our family anymore. We run in and out of the house. It's about me and what I've got going on. And the world is suggesting that's how you, you find happiness. Live for yourself. But the Bible says if you want to have happiness and joy, learn to be glad in your God. Ponder what God has done for you. When's the last time you said thank you to someone? Boys and girls, when's the last time you said to mom and dad, thank you? Thank you, mom. Or when is the last time you said thank you to God? Not just because you were supposed to pray now before supper, but but you just stopped in the day and said, thank you, God. That's wonderful. That's amazing what you've done for me. Thank you, God. Philip Arthur, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians 5, as he speaks of verse 14, where Paul says that the love of Christ compels us. Knowledge of this love of Christ compels us. Arthur writes, perhaps many of us would be less self-absorbed if our experience of Christ's love had been more intense. Perhaps many of us would be less self-absorbed if our experience of Christ's love had been more intense. We need to go to the cross of Jesus and be reminded of what we deserved, what we were, the wrath that was ours, and to ponder that love of God that he gave his own beloved son for us, that we might have a truly thankful heart. So adoration for God is the first fruit, but the second one is assurance for ourselves. The Catechism reminds us further that, 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 that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits. When we walk in obedience with God, then we are assured that we belong to him and his spirit's at work in us. If someone says to you, are you a roller skater? Do you roller skate? Then maybe you'd say, ah, you know, I, I did that when I was 16 years old. I don't know if I can roller skate. But if you go roller skating every Saturday, this is what I ask you, a roller skater? Yes, I'm a roller skater. If somebody says to you, are a Christian? You think, well... Yeah, I, I professed faith. I got baptized once. Haven't thought a lot about it. But if every day you're struggling against your sin, every day you're praying for grace to serve God, every day you're in the Word and you're saying, Lord, teach me your will, then somebody says, are you a Christian? You say, yes, I'm a Christian. That's my life. That's my Savior. That's my God. When we walk willingly in sin, or when we're negligent and neglectful in our Christian duties and Christian disciplines, we lose assurance. But we enjoy assurance as we walk close to God, bearing fruit for his glory, living in the knowledge that Christ died and rose again to make me his. But third fruit is attraction for our unbelieving neighbors. Attraction for our unbelieving neighbors. Our lives are to adorn the gospel to make beautiful in the eyes of the world 
Christ Jesus. Sometimes we do nice things to win points with others, but we're really just winning people to us. We want them to think that we're great people. But the Christian is supposed to want people to see in us the Lord and magnify him. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Peter said, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. We are to be walking billboards that advertise the glory of the gospel. So we have the gift of a new heart. And we, by God's grace, bear fruit, the fruit of a new and a thankful life. But finally this morning, let's consider the urgency of a new life. The Catechism says in that second question and answer, Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways? And the answer is by no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous person, drunkard, slander, robber, the like, will inherit the kingdom of God. And the footnote there has the passages remarkably clear. Is it possible just to go on living in sin? I'm forgiven, but I just go on living in sin? No, it's not possible. If I go on living in sin, then I haven't been forgiven. I'm not saved. If somebody says, I don't want the Lord, I don't want the new life, I don't want to be thankful, I want to walk in sin, then they, they don't know Christ Jesus. The Bible is clear on this. To live in sin willingly without repentance will keep us out of God's kingdom because it's a kingdom for repentant sinners, not for sinless people. Believers still fall into sin. Believers still struggle sometimes against the same sin, even throughout the course of their life, repenting over and over, but they don't willingly walk in sin. To do so is to be ungrateful to God. And that's true of all sin. But the Catechism also mentions sexual sin. And that's one the church in this day and age has to highlight. Because there are within the church many who are assuming that sexual sin will not keep them out of the kingdom of God. And there are churches that are waffling on the issue of same-sex sin, same-sex behavior, and thinking that will not keep people out of the kingdom of God. But the Bible is clear. Unrepentant sin, including same-sex behavior, will keep people out of the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what's the calling? The calling is be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become 
the righteousness of God in him. God has provided the way. If this morning our hearts are ungrateful, the summons is to fall before the Lord and confess our sin. And to pray the Lord for a grateful heart. To turn from our sin and to turn to the Lord. Because all those ways of the world are dead inroads. And the Lord can make us new. I was talking to a Salem police officer this week after he just dealt with some homeless people. And then he told me his father was a, had been a pastor when he was growing up. And, and he said that a third of the church his father pastor were ex-convicts. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, that's actually what keeps me optimistic in my work because I know God can change anyone. So that's pretty good, isn't it? For a police officer in this day and age to say that. I believe God can change people. And we should know that because he's changed us. When we were the ungrateful, hateful, and hating one another, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. And he gave to us a new heart. Do you give thanks to God for that new heart? Can you say this is the difference between me and the unbeliever? I am thankful to God. May God grant us that. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for your continued work in us. We praise you, Lord, for rescuing us from that self-absorbed life. Father, we thank you for the gift of a new heart, because you deserve praise and you should be thanked, and we are your creatures. Father, we thank you for redemption through Christ. We pray that our lives would show it. In Jesus' name, amen.